Hey, listeners, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. This month, we're on hiatus. And while we're gone, we'd like to showcase some of our episodes from the previous season. While we're preparing for our next season, you'll be hearing our very first episode. In this episode, Jean and Jennifer talk about their religious backgrounds, stories from their own spiritual journeys, and how the podcast came to be created. So, sit back and enjoy. Also, stay tuned for Season 2 of Wild Olive. New episodes start this October. Our hosts have a lot to discuss, and we can't wait to share it with you. So, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. This is Season 1, Episode 1 of Wild Olive, and today we're explaining who we are, what this podcast will offer, and why we want to add yet another podcast about the Bible to the internet. We'll also share how we arrived at the name Wild Olive. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. And hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to everyone who's listening for the first time, and welcome to those of you who have been listening to the Bible and Modern Literature. Thank you for following us over to Wild Olive Podcast. If you're a Bible and Modern Literature listener, you know that I'm a literature scholar and Jennifer is a biblical scholar. We're both professors and we share game changing strategies for reading the Bible, both testaments in the context of literature and culture. We teamed up in Season 2 of The Bible in Modern Literature and decided to continue the conversation here in a new podcast with a new name and some new plans. Let me say something about why we are podcasting. Every semester, we teach students how the Bible was developed and how social, historical, and political factors shaped this development. Since we teach in diverse environments, where not everyone thinks or believes the same things. We teach strategies for reading that anyone can practice, whether they are Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, pagan, religious, secularist, atheist, vegetarian, carnivorous, omnivorous, or anything else. Students often say to us, I didn't know you could read the Bible this way. Lots of Americans think you have to be religious to read the Bible, and that's just not the case. The Bible is sacred to some people, but not to everyone. But for everyone, it is a collection of profoundly influential literary works. In this podcast, we'll be exploring works of literature that depend on the Bible to make meaning in the modern and postmodern world. We'll look at authors like Octavia Butler, Jericho Brown, Zora Neale Hurston, Deuna Barnes, Alicia Ostriker, Avia Kushner, Tony Kushner, Emily Dickinson, and lots of others. It's game-changing to read the Bible alongside other works of literature. Contemporary authors help us see biblical literature in new ways. When we read with literary lenses, we can shake loose 
from specific interpretations that have been deposited onto the Bible through centuries of church tradition. Our students find context-sensitive, dogma-free reading strategies, our students find them liberating and invigorating. Reading the Bible outside of religious institutions is a game-changer. So this podcast is largely for readers who can't stand church or who might describe themselves as spiritual but not religious or who have been wounded in church and can't read the same way. Christian churches often try to control interpretation of the Bible. We don't. Jennifer, let me toss it to you now. What would you like to add about who we'd like to connect with and how we hope to change the game in terms of reading the Bible? Well, I think you touched upon most of the important elements here in terms of why we are doing this podcast. I think the one thing I'd like to circle back to or point to again is that we're trying to connect with people who, like us, are literature lovers who appreciate the ways literature and culture interact, as you alluded to when you referred to how important the Bible is for understanding some modern literature, or even just great literature over the centuries. And we're interested in connecting with people who are curious to learn how modern literature and culture can help us better understand the Bible. Absolutely. In your experience reading the Bible, when did your game start to change? I love this question. I think it's fun. For me, it came in several small steps of being educated about the Bible, which led to me thinking about it in dramatically different ways than I had growing up in a church and during my time in ministry in my teens and 20s. So for me, it all began with a few undergraduate classes on the Gospels and Paul's letters. It included a few encounters with biblical scholarship after college and culminated, or you could perhaps say blossomed, when I went to seminary in my late 20s. I had decided to take the dive into that three years of schooling in seminary because I wanted to learn the biblical languages and be able to have a hand in translating them for myself and for others, the way others had been doing for me. Being better informed about what the Bible is and how we get to the translations that we read was game-changing for me. What I had previously thought of as pretty much dictated by God, I began to see through a more complex lens as the result of human beings making sense of their world, defining their religious traditions and beliefs in the best way that they knew how to at the time, and most importantly, as reflecting the worldview that was typical at the time and place each text was written. Each step of that process was rather scary for me, I want to admit to our listeners. It was scary to give so much weight to the human impact on the scriptures. It meant that I might not read it all as perfect as I had previously, or as inerrant. And that left me feeling open and vulnerable. But with time, what was initially scary became a freeing and empowering process for me. So how about you, Jean? I know we have fairly different experiences with this collection called the Bible. What does it mean to you that we are offering game-changing readings? Yeah, I experienced a different kind of game change when I went from being 
disinterested in the Bible to being super interested in the Bible. And my Bible reading game started to change when I started teaching the Bible as literature and studying biblical scholarship. I guess that we have in common. Reading biblical scholarship really changed the way that we read the Bible. I came of age in the 80s in the United States when some of the loudest voices in conversations about the Bible were the voices of fundamentalists, people like Hal Lindsey, who published The Late Great Planet Earth, or even Ronald Reagan himself, who had a fundamentalist mother and who read the Bible very literally as both a factual account of ancient earth science and ancient history, and also a guide to the present and to the future. As a secular thinker, I could not make sense of that way of reading, and so I got very turned off of the Bible. After I got a PhD in literature and started teaching, though, I came across biblical scholarship that taught me a lot about the historical and cultural contexts that shaped the production of the Bible. Once I started to understand more about ancient Near Eastern culture and the social and political dynamics that shaped the Bible's production, I started to understand the text better and they became more interesting to me. I find that biblical scholarship that frees Bible interpretation from church control has really helped me approach the Bible from a literary perspective, and that's changed the way I teach literature, and it's also enabled me to appreciate the Bible more. As you know, I teach the Bible as literature, so I had to learn it as literature, and I have to thank you for your book, Permission Granted, because that is the kind of biblical scholarship that's given me better access to the Bible's texts. Can you tell our listeners about that book and what Permission Granted does, why you wrote it? Of course, I would be happy to. So first off, the title, Permission Granted, Take the Bible into Your Own Hands, came out of watching, quite literally, hundreds of students physically relax when I told them at the beginning of an introductory course on the Bible that I was not going to tell them what to think or believe, and that I welcomed their questions. I was granting them permission to interact with it all in whatever way they needed to. Our classroom conversations were exciting and invigorating for me and the students, and I regularly had students coming up to me at the end of a class session saying something like, I wish I could share this conversation we just had today with my friend or with my family, with someone, you know, even sometimes a youth pastor, something like that. So after this happening several times, I thought, I think maybe I should write that book. So in my first six years of teaching full time, I taught nearly three dozen intro sections on one of the two primary testaments of the Christian Bible. So I had intros to the Old Testament and intros to the New Testament though I prefer to refer to those two testaments differently, which we'll talk about later. The point is, I had a lot of practice figuring out how to have those conversations that were respectful and academically focused, and yet still allowed students the space to process new information, information that changed the way they thought about the Bible. So I wrote this book, bringing the most important conversations from those college classes to a wider audience. And as I wrote, the people I primarily had in mind were people who've been taught fairly traditional ways of reading and interpreting the Bible. 
I tried to make it an invitation or even really a conversation um, to considering something new, trying to guide or lead people into what I think of now as a more mature relationship to the Bible. What I've since discovered, though, is that the book also does something else. It helps non-religious folks or more progressive uh, Christian people better understand where more conservative folks are coming from. And as an educator, I do believe that when we better understand others, we're more likely to have respectful rather than dismissive conversations with them. So, you know, when you reached out to me to ask me to consider working with you on a podcast, I was deeply touched by the author, but also gratified that you too had found that work useful in teaching undergraduates about the Bible. I did. I definitely did. And I can attest to the fact that the book really helps grant students and professors also permission to take the Bible into their own hands. And when people do that, it is game changing. Worlds of interpretation open up. I can tell you that it was game changing for me to discover that the story of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree of good and evil is not necessarily a story about original sin, which is what I was taught growing up Catholic. I learned from reading Jewish Bible interpretation that for Jewish readers, original sin isn't even a thing. That's a specifically Catholic interpretation adopted by lots of later Christian interpretive traditions loosening the Bible's stories from the grip of interpretations imposed over time by religious authorities, that opens up interpretation in exciting and wild ways. And speaking of wildness, I feel mm -hmm. we owe our listeners an explanation of how we <laughs> arrived at the name Wild Olive. How do you remember that? Well, it certainly wasn't the first name we came up with, that's for sure. I I seem to recall that we started out thinking of food analogies, using food from the Bible, like locust and wild honey, something like that, because we were thinking of it in terms of biblical food for thought, or maybe there was more to it than that. But that was kind of where I remember us starting. And for a few weeks, we were working with something like wilderness and wild honey. Um, it seems like the image of wilderness was appealing in that we are interested in speaking to people who might relate to a wandering kind of experience, perhaps shifting between ways of thinking or searching for meaning in new ways. Then there was this issue we had of wanting to communicate that this was not going to be content that you would find in a typical Bible study, like so many of the podcasts out there. But a name like Not Your Grandma's Bible Study would be a little bit off-putting. And it seems that we wanted to send a message that it would lean toward academically informed content more than, say, spiritual formation kinds of content. And I pause on that because I think that we've had enough conversations. I think I'm speaking for both of us on this, that I we both think or sense that intellectual pursuits can ultimately be spiritually inspiring. Maybe I'm not quite speaking for you on that one, but I do think of it that way. Um, and I know that we wanted a way to open up space for all of these factors to be in the mix. I'm also guessing I remember the process a little bit differently than you do. What, what are the turning points or what thoughts do you have about how we settled on Wild Olive, Jean? 
I will tell you that, but I want to go back to what you said just a moment ago. You do speak for me okay. when you say that intellectual pursuits can also be spiritually inspiring. I know that sometimes with reading the Bible, sometimes people make a very stark distinction. And I also used to make a pretty stark distinction between critical reading and devotional reading. Mm -hmm. And I want to share that I read the Bible both critically and devotionally. And my critical reading feeds mm -hmm. my devotional practice. They, they intertwine for me. And actually, there's no way I could ever even consider the Bible from a personal spiritual perspective if I did not read it critically because it just doesn't work mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. uh, read uncritically. It, it's not a, a text that can inspire me unless I bring a whole lot of critical apparatus mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's where I am. But back to the name. So what I remember <laughs> is that we arrived at the first name we imagined, Locust and Wild Honey, because it's what John mm. the Baptist eats mm -hmm. in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to serve wandering types of people, feasts of ideas. But when we started running that name by listeners, some people asked, which one are you, the locust or the wild honey? <laughs> and nobody wants to be the locust. So we ditched that name and arrived at Wild Olive because it brings that note of wildness and wilderness. Plus, it's a tree the Bible mentions mm -hmm. often, but nobody has to be a locust. Um I'm going to mention ancient Mediterranean people revered the olive tree because it's gorgeous and strong. It's evergreen and its roots can penetrate rock. The flood story mentions an olive tree, that dove that Noah sends from the ark returns with an olive leaf. In Deuteronomy 6, God mentions vineyards and olive trees when God describes the richness of the promised land. The prophet Jeremiah uses the image to imagine a person who is blessed. And here's a little quote from Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful with goodly fruit. In the Newer Testament, Paul describes the process of people who are not Jewish developing faith in the Jewish God in terms of olive horticulture of non-Jewish people joining Jewish people in worship of the Jewish God, Paul says this, quote, you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. That's from Romans 11. So images of olive trees appear throughout the Bible's books. So wild olive feels appropriate to our subject matter. But also for me, the Bible itself is wild. <laughs> the stories are wild. The characters are wild. And freed from institutional control, biblical interpretation can get wild. And I'm thinking of some of our <laughs> previous mm -hmm. conversations on Bible and modern literature. I like interpretation that's complex, like an olive tree's fruit, right? Mm -hmm. Interpretation that's salty, spicy, sweet, rich, tangy savory, flavorful. Okay, I think I've squeezed every drop, <laughs> every drop out of that metaphor. Ah, ha, ha. Um, thank you for tolerating me. Um, can we talk about how Wild Olive is different from other Bible podcasts? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, well, f first off, it is content that is being produced and presented by two female identifying people who were both academically trained. So that 
in and of itself is unusual, I think. And it isn't that men couldn't present some of the same content that we will be presenting. But part of the reason I highlight the fact that we're female is because our life experiences and perspectives mean that we're going to we might bring different questions to the conversations to begin with than those you will find in most of the other Bible-related podcasts out there. But it also might mean that we are interested in highlighting and engaging different parts of the passages than men tend to be drawn to. And getting a little bit specific here, then the traditions have taught people to think about the biblical passages, right? But also, neither of us is beholden to a particular denomination or even to a specific religious tradition in what we are discussing and presenting. So what that means to me is that more or less, we get to speak our mind on all of these conversations that might not seem all that distinctive to some of our listeners. But if that's the case, I would just invite you to give us a few episodes and see if it makes a difference to you. But I have to say, Jean, what really hooked me to this to this collaboration with you when you approached me about this was what I saw happening with the, the specific combination of our backgrounds. It was just delightful, and it seemed so powerful to me. And since this whole project was your idea, <laughs> I'm wondering if you'd like to address that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. There are quite a few Bible podcasts connected with specific church traditions. Word on Fire adheres to Catholic interpretive traditions. Compass Podcast is supported by United Methodist Ministries and and so forth. And I would say there are other podcasts like Bible for Normal People and Homebrewed Christianity that are in the same, swimming in the same kind of water mm-hmm. where we are swimming. But because we are women, there are other things that we focus on. And also, none of the other podcasts that I just mentioned also have a focus on literature mm-hmm. that uses references to the Bible to make meaning in the modern and postmodern world. And I think that's the piece that's very different, is that we're blending yes. literature, culture, and the Bible. Uh, so that makes us different. We have that heavier focus on literature, and and also uh, we'll be talking about the ways that the Bible is used in contemporary culture, sometimes in very pernicious ways, and we want to be able to address that. I feel like now we really should say something about which Bible we're talking about when we refer to the Bible, as my <laughs> Jewish co- my Jewish colleagues remind me. Um, what Bible are you talking about? So the Bible, the Biblio, the library of texts we call the Bible, is different depending on what tradition you're sitting within, right? Can can you say something about that? Absolutely, yes, that is important. You know, whenever I teach an intro course related to the Bible, because I'm coming from a Christian background and Christian-focused training, I should say, I do start out by noting that the Jews have a Bible, and then they also have two collections of essentially commentaries. It's more complex than that, but two commentaries that are built upon one section of their Bible. And those two different collections of commentaries have almost scriptural status for Jews, right? So those would be the Mishnah and then the Talmud are the two sets I'm referring to. So that 
the Bible for Jews is usually called the Tanakh. So that's kind of this central collection of texts that, you know, the Mishnah and Talmud then build off of part of that. And so so for Jews to talk about the Bible, they're talking about the Tanakh, which is this collection of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Sometimes they'll just call it the Jewish Bible. Now, on the other hand, when you're talking in a Christian context, most Christians think of the Bible as having two testaments, if you will, or collections, but some think of it as having three. So if you're in the two collection category, you're usually thinking of what are called the Old and New Testaments, and you're likely from a Protestant or Protestant-related tradition. If you're in the camp that thinks of it as having three collections, then you're likely Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, and you would also be thinking of having that collection in the middle referred to as the Apocrypha. Those are writings that were written essentially in the time between the two other testaments. This is when it would be nice if we could have a visual instead of just be trying to talking this through and describing it. But there's one other thing I want to note for now, and that is the books in the Jewish Bible are all in the first testament for Christians. This actually comes as a shock to a lot of people. And in fact, I some people don't even really get it. I have to say it several times in class or whatever. So let me say it again. What, it, what Christians call the Old Testament is exactly the same set of books as is found in the Jewish Bible. There is a distinction, however, in the ordering of the books, and that actually leads to the Jewish Bible and the Christian Old Testament having two primary different messages, but that's another conversation. So what I'd like to say about these, these texts, these collections, these testaments— is that you'll be hearing me refer to them, instead of calling them the Old Testament and New Testament, I prefer to call it the Hebrew Bible. That's the language most of it was written in. Um, because I think Old Testament as a label is actually, well, it's a Christian label, first of all. And that collection is Jewish, first and foremost, right? So I don't want to use a Christian label for it. So I'll use Hebrew Bible and Newer Testament. Um, we could get into, some people suggest you call the Second Testament the Christian Testament, but that's not quite accurate either because for Christians, the whole thing, the whole thing is Christian. But originally, since I am a text person, originally, the people who wrote the writings of the, the Hebrew Bible and the writings that end up in the Newer Testament, they all identified as Jews at the time they were writing. So it gets a little complex. So from my perspective, they are the Hebrew Bible and the Newer Testament. Yeah, so that's that's where I'm coming from. I also want to note, though, before we move on, I don't want people to be uncomfortable if they hear us referring to biblical passages as texts or writings. And I say this because it really initially made me very uncomfortable when I was in seminary hearing someone refer to the Bible as a text, because that felt so uh, dis not dismissive, but it, it didn't feel respectful enough. Yeah. Um, I think people would rather, you know, initially I was like, no, those are sacred writings or sacred texts. Uh, so if, you know, if anyone listening to this feels like that is dismissive or not respectful enough, I'd like to suggest that they are texts. This, this isn't, uh, this isn't disrespectful language. The people who wrote them were writing things down. That means they were scriptures. They're written texts. They're texts. And so 
we'll be using that language, but not never in a way that's meant to be dismissive or, or disrespectful. And then that does bring us back to the conversation about who who the audience is who's listening to this, right? If you're hearing us say things that feels different or uncomfortable, want to invite you in, want you to feel comfortable with what we're saying. But I do think of this podcast, again, as being for people who are interested in thinking about biblical stories through more intersectional lenses than just the spiritual lens. What about Eugene? Anything else we need to touch on here? Oh, you said so much that is so valuable. And I think what comes to me is the fact that people who are already reading in religious communities, if you're reading the Bible in a religious community, you already have an interpretive framework that you're operating with. You already have reading companions. But what I have learned in over 10 years of teaching the Bible as literature is that there are so many people who are interested in the Bible who do not conduct their lives within a religious community. And I just don't believe that religious people should own the Bible. It is part of everyone's literary heritage. It's like Shakespeare or James Joyce or James Baldwin or Zora Neale Hurston or heck Tommy Orange. <laughs> I don't want to leave it. I don't want to leave indigenous people out. Yeah. So yeah. um it's foundational and it belongs to everyone and we are really offering conversation to people who may not already be having conversations about the Bible. This podcast is really specifically aimed especially toward them. And of course, we're really happy if people who are also reading in religious communities are reading our blogs and our books and, and listening to our podcast. I One thing we've talked about, we haven't talked about it in a while, but I like to think of the work that we do as a bridge, providing reading strategies for everyone whether they're in a religious community or whether they're not. So I have to say, I do hold the Bible sacred, and I also find them endlessly fascinating as literature. And our goal is to read familiar stories in fresh ways. So with that, let me go ahead and wrap up and let listeners know what's coming up. So we're going to start off with a six-week series based on Jennifer's latest book, Permission Granted. Then we'll be looking at biblical texts through queer lenses using two of my latest articles about queer writers who use the Bible to explore their concerns. From there, we're moving on to consideration of two contemporary Jewish poets, Alicia Ostreicher and Avia Kushner. And then we're diving into Octavia Butler, followed by a series on the women from the Jesus genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. I know Jennifer and I say those differently. Jennifer would say Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. So that'll give us plenty to talk about. I think that's about a wrap. And now here's one of our producers, Matt Byrne. This is Matt Byrne, one of the editors and producers at Wild Olive. Thank you for listening. 
If you like game-changing conversations about the Bible, literature, and culture, please hit subscribe and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. You contact Gene or Jennifer at www.genepatrol.com or www.jennifergracebird.com. Catch you next time!